you open your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 1, on page 171 in the Pew Bible. And any children here, kindergarten to first grade, who'd like to go to children's church, uh, can find uh, that if they go to the back of the sanctuary in the foyer. Children's church teacher will be there to meet them and take them over to uh, the classrooms next door in the trailers next to the church on the north side of the church. That's for Children's Church. Deuteronomy chapter 1. And this morning we're studying verses 19 to 46 on page 171 in the Pew Bible. And let me just read this story. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 19. Then as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb and went toward the hill country of the Amorites through all that vast and dreadful desert that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. And then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it, as the, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send some men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected twelve of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eskol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So He brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart. They say, The people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. And then I said to you, Do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you as He did for you in Egypt, before your very eyes and in the desert. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and a cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. When the Lord heard what you said, He was angry and solemnly swore, not a man of this evil generation will see the good land I swore to give your forefathers, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set foot on because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, You shall not enter it either. But your assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them. And they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. And then you replied, we have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons thinking it easy to go up into the hill country. But the Lord said to me, tell them 
do not go up and fight because I will not be with you. You'll be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance, you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord, but He paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days all the time you spent there. The day uh, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, uh, President Roosevelt addressed Congress and he addressed the nation over the radio and he delivered a a brief speech uh, with a famous opening line. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a day which will live in infamy. Uh, An infamous day, a terrible day, a horrible day, a day that changed everything for our country. Um, You know, Pearl Harbor happened almost 30 years before I was even born. Uh, But with the amazing power of the Internet, I was able to go online, click on a link, and actually listen to the speech. I'd never heard that speech, even though I'd heard of it. And And like I said, even though I was born so many years after that, just as an American, knowing the history having been to the Pearl Harbor uh, Memorial in Hawaii myself, and, and just you know, being part of that story, I was, I was really almost moved to tears listening to the speech. It was a, a really powerful kind of thing. It was a day of, infam- day of infamy. I wonder if in the future when uh, people look back and on the Internet or whatever it will have in the future, and they look at uh, September 11, 2001, people who weren't even born then will look back as part of, as Americans and, and just be moved as they think about another infamous day, a, a day that, um, that shook us as a nation of core, a terrible day, a bad day, a day of infamy. Well, this morning here in Deuteronomy, verses 19 to 46, we are uh, in that part of Deuteronomy that's uh, called the historic prologue. This is the part of Deuteronomy where Moses is sort of reminding the Israelites of the various events and things that took place leading up to that day. And as part of Israel's history leading up to that day, he reminds them that Israel had a date of infamy. But it wasn't infamous because Israel was attacked from without by hostile forces. It was infamous because Israel had a collapse from within because of a failure of faith. It wasn't an infamous day because there was um, an assault from without, but because there was a kind of mutinous rebellion against God from within the people of Israel themselves. It was the day that they refused to go into the promised land and take possession of it as God had commanded them. So look at the text, verse 19. It says, Then as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb and went toward the hill country of the Amorites through all that vast and dreadful desert that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. So Moses is talking to the Israelites on the verge of entering the promised land, but he's taking them back in time 40 years earlier to the first time they had been on the promise, edge of the promised land, but it had chickened out and not gone in and not trusted God. Um, <clears throat> you have this thing here. They went from Horeb to Kadesh, Bernea. Where is that? Uh, well, take out your sermon notes, this little insert in your bulletin. And if you look on the inside, there's a map. 
And there on the map, in the, you see the uh, Sinai Peninsula down by the Red Sea. You'll see Mount Sinai. That's the approximate location of where they think Mount Sinai was, where the Ten Commandments were given. We don't know for certain exactly which mountain it was. And that's where the Israelites had their... Uh, that's where they met with God, made their covenant. And then they traveled through the vast desert, and that's that little arrow leading up to Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea was an oasis. It is an oasis. Uh, but, but that stretch in between is 100 miles of waterless desert, a, a terrible place to travel. And that's what God's talking, Moses is talking about here when he says that God brought you through that desert and brought you to Kadesh Barnea. And there at the edge of the promised land, it was now time to go in. And so God said, you've reached the hill country of the Amorites, verse 21. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession as of it as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. So notice God, uh, Moses gives them two commands. Number one, go in. And just notice that the taking of the promised land is not optional. It's not like it's, a, it's an activity for those Israelites who are extra spiritual. They can go in the promised land. Everyone else can just chill out here at the oasis. No, no. Everyone needed to go and do it. And the second thing he says is, don't be afraid. You know, it must have been a terrifying kind of thing. Even though they'd been looking forward to the promised land, even though they'd been hearing about it, you know, it's scary when it comes to that time to, to actually do it and to, to change and to make a, a new move. It's, it must be kind of like, you know, people get cold feet on their wedding day. Like they're excited about the wedding day, but there's something about the actual day being there. Like this is it. We're moving forward. Um, I'll be honest, when, when we finally were uh, getting all of our permits for the building project out here, when all of the permits came in and we got every piece of paper and all of the uh, appeals period for all the permits had elapsed and we now knew that we had every legal right to go forward and the next day the trucks were coming in to start construction, I have to be honest, I got scared. Because suddenly you're like, wait a minute, this is actually going to happen. Oh no, should we be doing this? <laughs> you know. It's just because it's new. It's a big step. And so here's, here's Moses saying, guys, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. It's time to go. God is telling us we finally come to the promised land. It's time to go in and do it. But now they're scared. So they said, well, maybe we can send some spies in. Moses says, okay, okay, okay. You've got to send some spies. Fine. So 12 tribes of Israel, one guy from each tribe. You guys go in, spy it out. They go in, they come back, and the spies say, yep. Good country. Look, it's right there in verse 25. It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. They agree that the land is good. So Moses is calling them forward into the promised land. It's time to take it. I was trying to think about how to apply this passage today because as New Covenant Christians, we are in a different place than Old Covenant Christians. Israel, you know, Israel was called to go into a, a land, but as Christians, God's not calling us to go literally take over some land. It's not like Sasha Baptist is supposed to arm and go take over Cohasset or something, you know, and sort of move in there and form a, a little country. It's a different kind of situation. Christians are in all nations. They're scattered around. Our, our kingdom is a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly one under the new covenant. So, so in what sense are we called to enter and you know, how does this text apply? I mean, that's one of the challenges you wrestle with when you study Old Testament history. Is, is how do you make the application? What is God's word for us today based upon what it was for those people back then in a, in a different kind of situation? 
And as I was thinking about it, I think there are at least three sort of similar commands in the New Testament where we as Christians are called to enter or to go in and to do something for God. Let me just suggest these three and you you see what you think. One is this, and and I have them listed in your, your sermon notes. The first one is this. Jesus commands all people everywhere to enter the kingdom of God. That, that the command with the gospel, it's not just an invitation to come to Christ, it's stronger than that. It's a royal summons, to, it's a command to come to Jesus and to come to His kingdom. And so the first command is enter the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus. And that command is giving to everybody. That is a blanket command from God to every person on the face of the earth. Repent and believe in Christ. That's what Jesus preached. You know, look at the sermon notes. Uh, the first quote there under number one, enter the kingdom of God, Mark 1. We're studying through Mark now, reading through Mark. And what, how does Mark start? It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. And what did he say? The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Or I think of a similar story. Look at the fourth quote down from Acts 16. This is when Paul and Silas were in prison for preaching the gospel in Philippi. And there was an earthquake in the prison and the prison got all ruined and the jailer came running in. It says, the jailer called for lights. He ran in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then he spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. And so all people everywhere are called to enter the kingdom of God. We're all as humans sort of outside of God's promised land. We're outside of a relationship with Him. And we're being called to enter into the kingdom through faith in Jesus. Um, The second way in which I think we're called in the New Testament to sort of enter or go is that as Christians, those of us who are followers of Christ, we're called to go into the world to proclaim the gospel. You know, we're called to go out everywhere and to make disciples of all nations. So this is kind of the, the other side of this first point. So not only are all people called to come in, but somehow that call has to be put out there, and that's where we come in, that we then go back out and, and make the call uh, to the nations to come and believe in Jesus. If you look again at the sermon notes, look at the, uh, the bottom quote there, number two. Here's the famous Great Commission from Matthew 28. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So notice sort of the territorial claims of Jesus Jesus owns everything. He's Lord of everything. And he says, therefore, what should we do? Go and make disciples of all nations. So how can you make disciples of all nations unless you go? You have to actually go out there and move out to the nations. So, so we have this command as Christians, baptizing the name of the Father, the Son, and it's on the back of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so we don't go out there with swords or with violence or with manipulation or coercion. We simply go preaching the gospel, telling people about Christ and trusting that God will use His gospel to help other people enter the kingdom and then who in turn become those who go out and and share the gospel of the kingdom. That's the whole point of our missions conference. You know, our missions conference is coming up the end of October uh, and uh, we have our missions banquet October 30th. And so here's, you've seen these posters around maybe. This is our missions conference poster this year. And the theme this year is 
uh, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And you have this dandelion. Now, I, I just have to say, as a homeowner, I'm personally offended by dandelions. Um, <laughs> but it's a great image for the gospel and, and its power. Because, you know, dandelions, it's like one little seed, one little seed gets loose in your yard, and it's over. It lands, and it, it sprouts. I wish all the other plants I planted grew like dandelions. You know, they just... They, they, they seed, and then they pop up, and like in a day, they turn to look like this, and then, you know, they, they go flying around your yard. And, you know, I'm, I'll get off my lawnmower when I see one like this, and I'll, you know, pluck it and very carefully take it off my, my property and get rid of it. Because I know if just one of those seeds get loose. But, but yet, this is a beautiful picture of what the gospel is like. The gospel grabs people, it affects people, it changes people. And then they in turn become propagators of the gospel because it's like, look what Christ has done for me. And so we're called to go into the world and uh, speak the gospel. And then a third sort of way we're called to go in or enter the land that I see in the New Testament is that as Christians, we're called to keep pressing on until we reach eternal life with God in heaven. That, That in a sense, as Christians, yes, we're saved, but we're in a wilderness and we're still heading to the promised land, which is eternity with Christ. And so you have all these commands in the Bible to press on, to overcome, to not turn back, to not give up, to keep moving forward until we finally attain, attain that for which God has called us. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4. Go look it up sometime. It's really interesting. Hebrews 4 in the New Testament cites this very story in Deuteronomy And the application it draws from the story, the writer of Hebrews says, don't give up and don't fail to enter like those people did. Keep pressing on in your faith. Don't uh, don't fall into disobedience or unbelief. Don't backslide. Don't fall away from the church. Don't fall away from God's people. Keep pressing on because you haven't yet arrived. You need to keep moving forward in your faith. And so God is the God who calls us forward. He's the God who calls us in. He's the God who summons us to a new adventure. Whether it was the Old Testament Israel literally going into the land of Palestine or whether it's God calling people today to come into the kingdom through faith in Jesus, to go out into the world and to keep pressing on until we reach eternal life. It's the same thing either way. We have this calling as Christians. But as you know the story, Deuteronomy, we're back to the story here in the text. Unfortunately, This was not a day of triumph and victory and conquest. This ended up being a day of infamy where Israel completely rebelled against God and experienced the catastrophe of unbelief. So you look back at the story, verse 26. Moses reminds them, You were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us, so He brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there, sort of a family of very tall, huge people in the Old Testament. Big, tall, scary well-armed, well-fortified, what do we do? You know, they, they're freaking out and they're rebelling against God. And lest we think that the Israelites just have some pre-invasion jitters or something like that, the Israelites are in a full-throttle rejection of God's authority over the nation. 
that they are completely turning against him. In fact, put a bookmark here, and let's go back to the original story. It's just the book right before Deuteronomy. So turn back like two pages. You're in Numbers. And go to Numbers chapter 14. Here's the original account of the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. And I just want you to hear the, the intensity of rebellion here. Again, this is not just pre-invasion cold feet. Look at Numbers chapter 14, verse 1. You should read the whole chapter of Numbers sometime. You know, after the Patriots today. Read chapter 14. Just You need to read this story. It says, That night all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. This massive corporate whining. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they get this. And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And in fact, look at verse 10. The whole assembly talked about stoning them. That's Moses and Aaron. So again, this isn't just we're a little bit nervous. This is like we've had it. I think we should maybe kill Moses, have an election, and then go back to slavery in Egypt. Slavery is better than this. I mean, astounding that they would, they would suggest this. So it was a rejection of of this moment. God is calling them in, calling them to go, and they won't go. Of course, Moses tries to talk them off the cliff. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 29, he says, Then I said to you, Do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. Yeah, they got big cities, whatever. Don't worry. Don't be scared. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you, as He did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the desert. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries a son all the way you went until you reached this place. Guys, God can do this. Trust God. Don't be afraid. Isn't it fascinating how the Israelites and Moses were looking at the same information and yet with such radically different responses? They had the same data in front of them to which they both would have agreed. And yet, they look at the data and they they just go in completely different directions. You know, it's like, what's the data? Well, number one, the promised land is a good land. Does everybody agree? Israelites? Yeah, yeah, we agree. The spies said it was. Moses? Yeah, yeah, I know it's a good land. Okay, we agree. Good. Uh, Data point number two, the land is inhabited by big scary people. Do we agree? You know, Israelites, oh yeah, that's why we're not going in. Moses, yeah, 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 I know, I know, there's big scary people there. Data point number three, God has been with us in the past. Moses, of course, that's what I'm trying to tell them. Israel, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, Israel went through the Red Sea. These are the same generation that saw some of the most stupendous, miraculous acts of God in human history. And, and they went through it, so, so they have to agree. So everybody agrees that the land is good, it is inhabited by hostile forces, but God has been powerful in the past. And yet they both look at that data and Israel says, run away. And Moses says, charge. 
Why are they so different in how they react? And the answer is they had different interpretive lenses for how they were looking at the information. We all, none of us is a completely objective observer. We all look at life and information with an interpretive framework. And there are two rival interpretive frameworks at work here. The Israelites are looking at the data through the lenses of unbelief. They don't, they don't trust God. They don't believe God. And so they look at the data and they say, this is bad. And no matter how much data you give them, they're going to interpret it through the skewed lenses of unbelief and say, it can't happen. Moses has on the lenses of faith. And he says, God is in this. God can do it. And he says, we can do it. Let's go in. Isn't it so amazing how two people can look at the same thing and yet whether or not they have faith or no faith will affect how they respond to it? You know, you have a beautiful fall day like we had yesterday, quintessential Saturday in New England. The kind of, you know, this is why we live in New England. It's not for the winter, that's for sure. And it's not for the summer because there really isn't one. There's, it's, just that, it's just that fall day like yesterday. It's like that's the sweet spot for New England. And, and you know, the, un, the, the person with, with the lenses of unbelief walks out in that day and says, what a beautiful random accident this world is, you know, if they're honest, if they're consistent. They'll say, what, what a completely beautiful random accident. This is the most beautiful accident I have ever seen. If you could consistently use the concept of beauty, which really doesn't make sense without God either. But anyway, beside that. But, but it's just an accident. It's just random. But the person of faith looks at the same beautiful New England day and says, God, thank you for this day. Look what you've made. The fingerprints of design and intentionality are all over this. This is a beautiful artistic creation from God. This, the same, eye, same thing, different perspectives, unbelief and belief. Or what about suffering in life? You know, we sang that song, Blessed Be Your Name, when God sends trials our way. And, and I'm talking about the really hard sufferings of life. Um, you know, things like cancer and seeing your kid get sick, losing your child, um, abuse, mental illness, living with a difficult spouse, wishing you had a spouse. You know, the, the things in life that are really hard. And, and as a pastor, I've seen this. As people who've lived life, you've probably seen this. Uh, that, that some people go through those trials and those sufferings with the lenses of unbelief and they say, see, there can't be a God. If God loved me, if God was real, I wouldn't be going through this. And, and they're jaded, they're cynical, they're bitter because of the suffering they've gone through. And yet, I have seen people, I have heard people who've gone through just as much trial, just as many challenges. And, and, and they say, you know, Oh, boy, God was with me the whole way. God carried me through. I don't know how people go through that without God. They'll say things like that. I, God was so faithful. In fact, I've even heard people say, this sounds so crazy, but they say this. I've heard these words. I wouldn't go through it again, but I'm so thankful I did because of all that God showed me and all that God taught me and all that, the, the, the way I've grown close to God through all this and the way God has used this incident that I didn't understand at the time for His greater good down the road. It's like, how can you go through the same misery with such dramatically different results? It's the eyes of unbelief versus the eyes of faith. 
And I, I would even take it a step deeper if I could just kind of go one level lower to an even more foundational level. It's not just having faith. Because I want to be clear about that because sometimes I've heard people talk about faith who don't really believe in God. They just believe in having faith. You know, people will say, maybe you've heard people talk like this. Like, well, look, I, I just have faith it's going to be okay. Like, what do you mean? Well, I, you know, it's just going to be okay. I just believe that. Why? I don't know. I just have faith. That's not the kind of faith I'm talking about. Sort of a nebulous optimism. I'm talking about believing in the God of the Bible, that He is real and powerful, and that He has good purposes, even in the most terrible things of life in the long term. That kind of faith. Faith in Jesus, not just faith in optimistic feelings. And, and so notice that Israel and Moses had different views of God. So it's more than just unbelief versus faith. It's Israel saw God one way, Moses saw God another, which gave rise to their faith or unbelief, which then produced either rebellion or disobedience. So you've got to go all the way down to the roots. Look how Israel viewed God. Verse 27. The Lord hates us. And so He brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. They say God is mean, God is capricious, God is ornery, God is nasty. God doesn't love me, God hates me. Look at Moses said about God, verse 30. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as He did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the desert. God's a defender. He's not going to fight for you. And there you saw, how the, I love this, how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. What a beautiful picture of God. You know? Just remember back ten minutes ago when you saw Paul Sousa walking down the aisle with Gabriel in his arms. A proud father, you know, just carrying that son. That's how God carries us as His people. We know that He carries us and He loves us. What radically different conceptions of God which then produce unbelief or faith, which then give fruit to either disobedience or rebellion or trust and obedience. But it all comes down to who God is and how you view God and, and whether He is the God He says He is. What was the serpent's lie to Eve? How did the serpent deceive Eve? Did He come to her and say, boy, fruit of good and evil, it'd be good just to eat that. No, no, He didn't start there. He started with God. He said, did God really say to you? So he started by undermining her belief in God, which then corrupted her faith, which then led to the act of disobedience. But it started in the heart. It started with the issue of faith and who God is. And so today Christ is calling us to enter the land in different ways. And our response will depend by and large on how we view God. You know, think about those three New Testament commands again. The first one is enter the kingdom of God. Believe in Jesus. Be saved. And so it's really going to come down to who do you believe Jesus is? Do you believe that He's the Son of God who was crucified to save sinners like me and that He rose from the dead? You know, do you believe that about Him? If you do, then you'll say, you know what? I'm going to enter the kingdom of God because Jesus could save me even with all of my past all of my baggage, all of my skeletons, all of my scars, all the things I'm ashamed of doing, Jesus died for me. And you'll want to enter the kingdom of God because of who He is. And it's by faith that we enter. Or, or think about the, uh, you know, the second one, the command of Jesus to go into all the world and preach the gospel. 
It's like, really, Jesus? Even in New England? <laughs> Have you been in New England? This is not, this is a tough place to be a Christian. Uh, you know, the walls are big, the people are tall, it's scary here. <laughs> Certainly you don't mean the gospel here in New England. But it's like, do we believe that Jesus is sovereign over people's hearts? That he can save anyone, anywhere? Do we believe in his power? It really comes down to that. Um, I had lunch, or actually more of a coffee, earlier this week with um, a guy who just moved up from North Carolina. He's a church planter. He uh, was invited up here by a group of people who were wanting to start a Presbyterian church in Pembroke, which is really exciting. You know, believe it or not, not everybody is Baptist. I, just, I, don't, I don't understand it, but it's true. So, uh, you know, I'm really excited. We need, we need more Presbyterian churches in this area. And so he's coming up here to, to plant a church. And so we're talking, just a great guy who loves the Lord. I'm just praying that his church will really take off. But he... Um, but, but, but he was talking about his passion. He started getting really passionate and excited. And for a Presbyterian to get passionate, that's a really unique thing. I was, uh, it's like, take a picture, you know. But anyway, he was, um, he was like getting really excited. And, uh, and by the way, he was here in the first service. He came and heard this story. I couldn't believe it. But anyway. <laughs> but he, he's getting all worked up. And he's getting all fired up. And he was like, you know, Jeremy, he goes, the, the one thing I, I want, Jeremy, he goes, I'm just praying that God will give me one man who will be changed by the gospel. Because I, I just want, because that's all I want. If, if I could just move up here and I just see one guy come to faith and grow in the gospel, it will all have been worth moving my family up here and changing my life. I was like, wow. If all of us had that prayer, Lord, before I leave New England, whenever that is or however that is, give me one person who I can lead to faith and, and help grow in the faith. Wow. You know? And so I pray for him. But that's, that's faith in who God is, not in what we can do. And even the, the final entering the land, uh, you know, in, in the sense of eternal life, in, in the sense that, that we as Christians really haven't come to the promised land yet. We're still in a wilderness. We're still traveling. And it's like God is calling us to heaven. You're like, I, I don't know if I can get there. You know, I've got so many problems. I've got so many sins. You know, just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you're completely sin-free. I mean, we still fall back in old habits, old patterns. We, we have dis- discouragements. We have disappointments. Things go wrong in life. Dreams fall apart. And it's like, I just don't have the energy to keep pressing on to eternal life. We drift away from the church. We drift away from prayer and Bible study. We, we just drift. And it's like, maybe I should just give up. And we've got to remember, it's God who's going to bring us there. That He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And so you need to trust Him. Is your faith in what God's going to do? Is God going to bring you to eternal life? Or is it up to you to kind of put it together? Which one is it? And so our view of God is determinative in all this. That Jesus can save sinners. That Christ can use me to share the Gospel. That God will bring me across the finish line. It's so important how we view God. And if we view Him as the God who can do that, it will give us faith. And when we walk in faith, obedience will be the fruit as a result. But unfortunately, just to finish the story here in Deuteronomy, we know that this was unfortunately a day of infamy for the Israelites. It was a day of failure. It was a day of, of rebellion against God. And so as a result, what happened? God said, you're not going in. 
I'm not letting you take this land. Sorry. It's going to go to your kids, but not you. And then verse 41 to 43 is just astounding. Look at verse 41. Then you replied, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, Tell them, don't go up and fight, because I'm not going to be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance you marched up to the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you, and they chased you like a swarm of bees. What a great visual that is, being chased by a swarm of bees. And they beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormah. So God says, go in, and they say, no. So God says, fine, don't go in. They say, no, we're going in. It's like, ah, they just don't, whatever God says, they're doing the opposite. They're not trusting him. They're just operating in their own wisdom and their own strength, you know. And, and uh, I think what's interesting here is just to note that what's taking them into the promised land this time is not faith. It's self-reliance. It's self-confidence. It's arrogance. The text makes it very clear. Again, look at verse 41. Every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it easy to go into the hill country. So they're not going on faith in God. They're going because now they've suddenly decided, you know, maybe we can do this. Hey, you know, so-and-so over here has put together a military plan. Maybe we can do this. Verse 43, you rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your faith you marched up. No, in your arrogance. So that's important because on the outside you might read that and say, well, finally Israel got the message. Finally they're acting in faith. Finally, they're trusting God because, look, they're going into the promised land. But don't let looks deceive you because the same thing that made them say no, that same arrogance and disbelief in God is now driving them in a different way, but it's still unbelief. It's still a rejection of who God is and His goodness. How many times have people realized, I have sinned? How many times have people looked at their lives and said, you know what, my whole life has been years of sex, drugs, rock and roll, greed, narcissism, pride, selfishness. But you know what, that's bad. I'm going to change that now. I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to get sober. I'm going to hit the gym. I'm going to lose some weight. I'm going to uh, to spend time with my my family. I'm I'm going to go to church. I'm going to be a better person. And we might look at that person and say, Wow, isn't that great? You're really changing from one to the other. And, and it, you have to admit, at some level it is good. I mean, better to be sober than not sober. I mean, you know, better to, to be fit than not fit, I suppose. But my point is, what's motivating the change? Don't you see that, that if you see all those problems, and instead of saying, Jesus, I need you as a Savior, you say, you know what, I'm just going to make myself better here. I'm going to just strap on my weapons. I'm going up into the hill country. It's just as much unbelief in God as was the sex, drugs, rock and roll lifestyle. It's just in a different form. It's now a self-righteous kind of religiosity that still isn't trusting God, that still isn't relying on His power. And so ultimately we need God's power. We need God to save us. The reason Moses said you can go in was because God was going to be with you and God was going to do the fighting for you. My wife... um, had an interesting conversation with her hairdresser this week 
She went and got her hair cut, and uh, she was able to talk about Jesus with her hairdresser. Um, they were, the, w- the women in the hair salon were talking about the church on Route 53. You know the, uh, the, the four-square church on Route 53 down here that used to be a carpet store. They turned it into a church. And so the women were talking about it in the hair salon for whatever reason. What's that church? You know, what is, is that a church? Is that a school? And my wife's like, no, no, that's an evangelical church. And so they all said, what's an evangelical church? So she's like, well, um, you know, it comes from the word like evangelism or, or evangelist. It means to, to tell the good news. It's, peop- it's Christians who believe that part of being Christian is that, that they need to tell other people about Jesus because it's only through believing in Jesus that we can be saved and be right with God. And, uh, and the hairdresser was kind of intrigued by that. So she said, well... She goes, you know, I, she goes, I, I believe in God, and I'm a good person. And, um, and apparently, you know, this, she went on to tell the story. She says, eight years ago, she had, had the years down, you know, eight years ago, I wasn't a good person, but I decided I should be good. And so since then, I've decided to be a person. I'm a good person now because I, I changed my ways. And, and I just found that so interesting, not, not to pick on her, but to pick on ourselves. I don't even know the woman, but it's like, that's so us. That's how we think. Like, well, I, I fixed myself. I can take pride in changing my life, and I'm on this track. And, and my wife said, well, you know, the Bible teaches that all of us are sinners and that none of us can please God by our efforts and our actions and that we need Jesus to be our Savior. She said, you know, why did Jesus have to die on the cross if you can be right with God just by being a good person? Why would Jesus have to sacrifice himself? Why would God send his son to do that? And uh, she's like, I'm not sure... What do you say? I don't really understand. She was still kind of trying to process this. And my wife said, well, let me show you in the Bible. So she, this is where it gets kind of funny. She pulled out her iPad <laughs> and, uh, and went on her Bible app and uh, brought up you know, her Bible and, and took her to uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 2 where it makes it very clear that we're saved by God's grace, not by our works. And, uh, and so you've you know, you got to love this scene. Salon, my wife's getting her hair blow-dried. And she's handing the iPad to her hairdresser. And, and she said, you know, this is sort of my wife's style. Uh, she says, you know, I want you to read it out loud. So <laughs> Lydia was like, okay. And uh, she's, I'll read it out loud. And, and so she's, so imagine this. In the hair salon, the woman's standing there, you know, praise God. He can do anything. And she's standing there reading Ephesians out loud in the salon. <laughs> and I want to show you the verse that she read. Let's read it all together. Let's have a hair salon moment. <laughs> Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. It's on page 1156 in the Pew Bible. I'm sorry I don't have an app for you. You're going to have to find it. Ephesians chapter 2, page 1156. And here's the verse that we're saved by faith, not by our works. Maybe you know this verse. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Page 1156. Let's, let's all be the hairdresser. Let's all read it together because we all need to hear it. Verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We're saved by a gift of faith, not our works. See, it's faith. It's faith that God will beat the Canaanites. It's faith that Jesus can save me. I can't save myself. It's faith that God is going to use my pitiful attempts at being an evangelist for His glory. It's faith that Jesus is the one who's going to carry me like a father carries his son to eternal life. 
And so when I find myself faltering or falling away as a Christian, the answer isn't, boy, I need to redouble my efforts. It's I need to run to the Savior again for His grace to sustain me. And so there is a delicious irony in the Gospel that God commands us to do things to be saved that we are incapable of doing in and of ourselves. Just repent and believe. You can't without His grace. Just go out there and share the gospel. It's easy. You can't. Nobody will be converted apart from His grace. Just stay faithful. Don't fall away. I can't apart from His grace and mercy. And so it's God's grace. It's His power from beginning to end that sustains me. And even the responses He requires from me must be a gift of His Holy Spirit's impartation so that in the last day I'll be able to stand and say, you know, what we just read here, all the way my Savior led me. The choir just sang, all the way my Savior led me. It was His grace, not my works. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just pray this morning for a, a greater vision of Your majesty. Lord, reveal to every heart who You are. Reveal to everyone Your glory. Lord, I pray that if anyone is outside of the kingdom here this morning, that they would be bold and that they would put their faith in Jesus and they would enter the kingdom by repenting and believing in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would, especially as we approach this missions conference, that you would renew our church's vision for being a sending church, not just sending missionaries to other countries, but even going out ourselves as your vessels. Lord, may the winds of the Holy Spirit blow upon this dandelion of this church and blow seeds all over the South Shore. And God, we pray that you would sustain us and bring us to eternal life. Lord, I pray for the membership of this church, that every member of this church would be found in Christ on the judgment day. So, Lord, bring us across the finish line as well, we pray in Jesus' name.